Start out in verse 11 today. As I was uh, walking up uh, to begin preaching tonight, or when we were actually in the back praying there, uh, Pastor Brian actually told me that his, uh, I guess his quiet times are in the book of Judges at the moment. He said he's studying a figure named Ehud. So Ehud's in uh, Judges chapter 3, and he actually comes right before my favorite judge in the whole book of Judges. So this guy's name, my favorite judge, is a guy named Shamgar. We get one verse about Shamgar in the entire Bible. It's not true, actually. We get two verses. He appears one other time in the book, uh, book of Judges. He's just given like a little fleeting reference. But anyway, in Judges 3, verse 31, here's our verse about Shamgar, my favorite verse. So, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So why in the world is this my favorite judge? Do y'all know what an ox goad is? As near as I can tell, an ox goad is like this pointy stick that you used to just poke at and prod cattle to get them to go where you want to. So as near as I can figure, this guy Shamgard was just out in his fields one day uh, tending to his cattle, and he has his little pointy stick with him, and he looks over to the hill next to him, and he sees 600 Canaanites. And he looks back at this little pointy stick he has, and he says, uh-uh. And he goes and thrashes every last one of those Canaanites, and they're never heard from again. I just think that's great. You know what I think's great about that? This guy was called by God to do something. You know what? The circumstances in his life weren't great to do it. But you know what? He went and did it. It didn't matter. So I just, and the other reason that I love Shamgar is I think he is a perfect illustration in the book of Judges of the main point that I want to bring to you tonight, and that's this. God is glorified in his people's weakness when they come to serve him. So uh, I want to pray for us before we get started. I know Brian just prayed, but I want to pray for myself. So Lord, thank you for the opportunity to present your word to these people. Lord, uh, what an honor it is to preach from your word, Father, to teach from it, Lord. Father, I believe, Father, when your word impacts hearts, Father, along with the Holy Spirit, you change people. And so I pray, Father, that that would happen tonight, Father. Lord, I pray, Father, through no giftedness of my own or anything special in me, Father, but just from the power of people coming into contact with your word and your Holy Spirit that people would be changed through the preaching of your word tonight. Amen. So if you made it to Judges 6, 11 yet, before we get started, I wanted to thank Jonathan and Pastor Brian for inviting me to preach. Um, I wanted to thank all of you guys for coming. Some of you even came after you heard that I was going to be the person preaching tonight, so I'm really thankful for that. I've entitled this sermon, God's Glory in Weakness in the Life of Gideon. Now, when I speak of God's glory in weakness, you could be forgiven for thinking of another passage instead of Judges 6 through 7. The, the Apostle Paul talks extensively about God's glory in weakness in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. For instance, 2 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says, If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. A few verses later in 2 Corinthians 12.5, Paul says, On my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. And then in verse 9, speaking of his thorn in the flesh, Paul states, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
But tonight we're going to study God's glory and weakness from the book of Judges. I actually think the idea of God's glory through human weakness is one of the main motifs that runs throughout the book of Judges and that the author utilizes to establish his theme for the book. However, tonight I want us to focus our attention on the person of Gideon. We are going to see how God glorifies himself in Gideon's weakness, and we are going to conclude by discussing four areas in our lives where God will glorify himself in our weakness. Before we dive straight into Gideon's story, I want to establish the story's context first. To understand the content of the book of Judges, you have to start at the very beginning of the Bible itself. The book of Genesis begins with the story of God's perfect creation, but almost instantaneously, humanity, God's appointed overseers of creation, rebel, and all of and they and all of creation succumb to the tyranny of sin. But in Genesis 12, we learn of God's plan to use a man named Abraham and his family as his instruments to bring his creation and most importantly his appointed overseers back into a relationship with him. In Genesis 15 we see that God promises to give Abraham's descendants a good land within which they could love and serve and worship God as they live out their daily lives. The idea is that they would model how to serve and worship God before the pagan nations around them while they all awaited the next stage of God's awesome plan of redemption. But there's a catch. God tells us that Abraham, tells Abraham that his descendants would be slaves to a ruthless nation for 400 years before he would bring them up out of that land and into the promised land. Well, sure enough, 400 years after Abraham, Moses, one of Abraham's descendants, leads the rest of Abraham's descendants out of the land of Egypt. And they began their journey to the land which God has promised uh, to Abraham so long ago. But there's a problem. You see, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, have the same problem that God's original overseer had. They cannot keep themselves from rebelling and choosing sin over God's good and wonderful plan for their lives. When Moses brings the people of Israel out of Egypt into Mount Sinai, they promise that they will keep God's commandments and never rebel against him. But almost immediately, it's actually the very next word the people of Israelites say in the narrative. They rebel. They commit to forming a golden calf and worshiping it. God forgives them, and for a while it seems like everything is back on track, even though you don't really have to read very far beneath the surface of the narrative to realize things aren't going that well. But nevertheless, under the leadership of Joshua, Moses' helper and the servant of the Lord, the people of Israel arrive in the promised land and thrash its inhabitants. They take possession of the land, and it seems like everything is going well and that God will continue his plan to use this people, Abraham's descendants in the land, the promised land, as his instruments to bring fallen humanity back to himself. But then we arrive in the book of Judges, and we read that Joshua, the servant of the Lord, has died, and that the Canaanites have never actually finished thrashing the Canaanites out of the land. And what makes matters worse is that rather than continuing the work Joshua began, it appears that the Israelites are more committed to becoming like the Canaanites rather than thrashing them. Daniel Block, a former Old, Test a former Old Testament professor at Southern, calls this the Canaanization of Israel. What he means by that is the people of Israel, who are supposed to be God's people, look, like the more, look more like the nations they were supposed to thrash than the people of God. The book of Judges actually uses a set narrative pattern to describe how the people of Israel continue to rebel against God. It's often called the cycle of Judges. It begins with the people rebelling against God. God then judges the people by handing them over to their enemies. 
the people then cry out to God to save them, save them, and then God delivers them from their enemies. But here's the thing. Rather than repenting of their sin and returning to the Lord, the people round right back up here again where they are in rebellion against God. This time around the cycle, it is the Midianites who are oppressing the people of Israel. The Midianites, however, are not like most of the nations that God would use to judge his people. Rather than coming into the land and trying to take over, the Midianites like to lay low. They would let the people of Israel plant their crops. They would let the people of Israel tend to their crops all spring and then all summer long. And then finally, right at the beginning of harvest, right when the Israelites were about to go take their crops down and, and harvest them, the Midianites liked to swoop in and take all the Israel had worked so hard for and take it back to their land. So the people of Israel had land but no food. There's probably a metaphor in that situation with our modern secular society, don't you think? We have all the material things that we could ever want and that are supposed to make us happy and bring us joy, but without God, all those material things are just like the empty fields of this in Israel. They had land, but no food. We have material possession, but no lasting joy, right? If you take God out of any, situ- any situation, you wind up with everything you want, but you still lack what you need. So now we're ready to be introduced to the person of Gideon. Let's begin reading in Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth at Aphra, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? When we first meet Gideon, he is the epitome of weakness. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and finds him beating out his weed in a wine press. Gideon has apparently been able to keep his wheat crops unnoticed from the Midianites as they made their raids into the land. And now it's time for him to separate <coughs> separate the kernels of wheat from their stalks. And the way they would do this is they would find a windy place like a hilltop and take all their crops up there and they would take that wheat and they would toss it up into the wind. And as that wind hit the crops, it would blow away everything that wasn't good wheat to eat and the good wheat would fall back down to the earth and they would gather all that up and have their wheat crops well we see Gideon doing this in a wine press so to imagine a wine press it's best to think of like a ditch in the in a field or an indentation in a field Gideon is trying to harvest his crop but rather than harvesting his wheat crop up on a hilltop where it could be done effectively but be at risk being seen by the Midianites Gideon is down in a ditch This man of weakness wants no part of dealing with the Midianites and is doing everything he can to avoid the enemy of God's people. This reminds me of the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. When Nehemiah and his men go to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, they are in constant danger of the people surrounding Jerusalem who want to tear down what they're rebuilding. But Nehemiah doesn't take the Gideon approach. What does Nehemiah tell his men? He tells them, strap on his sword, boys, and get to work. 
And as those enemies of God's people come out to tear down what you're doing, you can stop your work and beat them back, and then you get back to work. But that's not what we see here in Gideon. He is a picture of pure weakness. But did you notice how the angel of the Lord refers to Gideon? The angel of the Lord calls Gideon, who is hiding in a winepress, a a mighty man of valor. How can this be? Gideon is harvesting his wheat crop in the most ineffective manner possible, down in a wine press. As we continue to read this narrative, you are going to see that nothing about Gideon would make you think mighty man of valor. You know what I think is going on here? I think this is the first indication of the main point that I want to make tonight, which is that God is glorified in our weakness. Gideon is a mighty man of valor, but that valor does not stem from him. This title, Mighty Man of Valor, is like an arrow pointing straight to the God who is the source of Gideon's valor. God is the source of Gideon's valor, and that valor hasn't even shown up yet, but it's coming. You know what else is interesting about this phrase? The angel of the Lord calls Gideon a mighty man of valor, but I have said it should be obvious to the reader of this text that the source of this valor isn't Gideon, but God himself. In fact, I think it's safe to say that in a biblical worldview, the only time it's actually good to be a man of valor is in the context when that valor comes from God. The word translated valor here is the Hebrew word gibor. There are two occasions when this term is used early on in the Bible. The first is in Genesis 6-4, where the word is used to describe a group of people called the Nephilim. Now, we don't really know a lot about this group of people, but one thing that we do know is that their actions are part of what led to the flood of Noah. And so (coughs) we don't know much about these people, but everything we do know doesn't point a very good picture. The next time we see this word used is in Genesis 10.8, where it's used to describe a man named Nimrod. And Genesis goes on to describe Nimrod as a tyrant who aggressively built his kingdom by force. So the fact that Gideon is called a mighty man of valor could actually be cause for concern. The next time somebody recognizes Gideon's strength comes in chapter 8, but it is not the angel of the Lord who recognizes Gideon's valor that stems from God at this point. It is the enemies of God's people who who recognize Gideon's strength at that point, but rather than Gideon's strength pointing to God's glory, it points to Gideon's tyrannical use of force. You see, Fisherville Baptist Church, there are only two kinds of strength. There is a kind that stems from God and brings him glory, and there is a kind that stems from ourselves that doesn't. Let's keep reading. In verse 15, we read, And he said to him, that's Gideon, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Here again, we are given a glimpse into the weakness of Gideon. Uh, When told that he will deliver Israel from the Midianites, Gideon responds with doubt and excuses. How can I save Israel? My family is the weakest family in Manasseh, and I'm the weakest person in my father's house. Let's continue reading. In verse 17, we read, And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unloving cakes from an ephah of flour. 
The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and unleavened bread cakes and put them on a rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that the angel that it was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Here again we are giving a glimpse into the weakness of Gideon. How is that, you might ask? Well, in this instance, the focus isn't on Gideon's physical weakness, but on the weakness of his faith. Rather than trusting the messenger of God and rather than taking God at his word, Gideon requests that he be given a sign to affirm this really is uh, God's message. I think this part of Gideon's story is meant to remind us of another famous character in Israel's past. When God appeared to Moses at Mount Sinai, we see Moses doing many of the same things as Gideon does here. First, apart from the actions of either Gideon or Moses, we have this weird thing where it's the angel of the Lord speaking to these two individuals. Uh, But this angel of the Lord, in some respect, is supposed to be identified with the Lord himself. So don't ask me to explain that, but it happens in Exodus chapter 3 and here in Judges 7. Second, both Moses and Gideon initially say the same thing. Who am I to do what you are telling me to do, Lord? Third, in both cases, God promises that he will be with them as they carry out their assignment. Fourth, these stories include signs from God in both instances, but it is these signs that are supposed to tip us off to the weakness of Gideon's faith. You see, we need to understand first that this was not a high point in Moses' ministry to the nation of Israel. We might be fooled into thinking that if the narrator is comparing Gideon to Moses, then Gideon must have a lot going for him, but not in this instance. This story in Exodus 3 and 4 about Moses ends with Moses kindling the anger of the Lord. Essentially, Moses has shown such a lack of faith that God has finally said, Moses, you best get going back to Egypt, because if you stay up on this mountain of Sinai in disbelief, things are about to get real ugly for you, Moses. This was not the point in Moses' life with which you would want to be compared. But second, notice that unlike Moses, Gideon's disbelief is so great that he actually demands a sign from God. So not only uh, is Gideon cowering in a wine press, not only is he the smallest son uh, of the smallest son of the smallest clan in his tribe, he also has weak faith in God's commitment to do what God says he is going to do. But remember what is said in verse 14. God is committed to using Gideon and all of his weakness to save the Israelites from the oppressors. God is planning to use a weak man with weak faith from a weak family, from a weak clan to deliver God's people from their enemies. And God is going to be glorified in Gideon's weakness. So let's keep reading. Starting in verse 25, we read, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build on the altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family 
and of the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So God tells Gideon to cut down his father's idols. Well, what does Gideon do? Well, he awaits and he waits until night so no one will see him do it. And he takes hired men to actually do the work. Again, Gideon is portrayed as a man of weakness in these verses. Let's keep reading in verse 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, and behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against them, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him. So after Gideon cuts down his father's idol, the next morning the men of the town wake up and see what's happened to their pagan altar, and they figure out who is responsible. They go to Gideon's dad and say, hand him over. At this point, the narrative feels like it's primed for one of those famous speeches by God's man of the hour, doesn't it? We are waiting for Gideon to stand up to those townspeople and say, whoever is on the side of the Lord, come over here. But whoever is on the side of the false gods, go over there. When Moses does this in number 16, we are told that the ground's op- ground opens up around those who are on the side of the false god and swallows those who are not on the side of the God of Israel. Or we're ready for Gideon to say, choose this day whom you will follow, either the Lord God of Israel or the pagan gods of the land. But we don't get that. In fact, we don't get another word out of Gideon until verse 36 when he is challenging God in disbelief again. Instead, Daddy shows up on behalf of his son. And the speech that Daddy gives isn't the most inspiring tribute to the God of Israel. It basically goes like this. Guys, let's just wait and see if Baal judges him. Rather than standing for the truth and all-surpassing worth of God, Gideon's father says, let's just see what happens to Gideon. And again, Gideon is presented as a weak vessel. But here's the main point of this sermon. God brings glory to himself in Gideon's weakness. The altar built, there is an altar built. The altar built in honor of Baal is torn down in his weakness. And a sacrifice is made to God. Let's keep reading our story. We're going to read chapter 6, 33 through chapter 7, verse 8. But I'm going to skip verses 36 and 40 for time's sake. I imagine those of you who have even a cursory knowledge of the Old Testament will be familiar of Gideon testing God with the fleece. And I'll just say quickly again that Gideon does not have faith that God is going to do what God says he's going to do in that instance. But let's start reading in Judges chapter 6, verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the uh, Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded a trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and to Zebulun and to Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. 
and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. And anyone whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue like a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent out all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below them. In these verses, <coughs> we see the idea of God's glory through human weakness coming into focus. Thus far, we have focused on Gideon's weakness and the weakness of his faith, but now we're going to focus on the weakness of Gideon's army as well. The Midianites and their allies have gathered together to fight with Israel, and Gideon has gathered an army from the tribes of Israel to do battle with these nations. Verse 3 says that Gideon has gathered 32,000 troops for his army. But what does God say? Gideon, I'm going to be glorified in your weakness, and with 32,000 troops, you're not weak enough. You can imagine what Gideon is thinking, right? He's probably thinking, God, isn't there some other way that you can get all the glory in this situation? I know, what if me and my 32,000 troops go and thrash these other guys and afterwards we'll have a big worship service and give you all the glory for our victory? But God isn't listening, is he? He speaks to Gideon and says, Gideon, I want you to tell every man who is scared to go into battle that they are free to go home. And just like that, over two-thirds of Gideon's army goes home. And we can imagine what Gideon is thinking now, can't we? Oh, great, God. Well, you'll definitely get the glory now. How am I going to beat our enemies with this army of 10,000 men? And God says, Gideon, your army is still too big for me to be glorified in your weakness. When God is done sending home Gideon's army, Gideon is left with 300 men. And God finally says to Gideon, this is perfect. There is no way, Gideon, that you are going to win this battle now. Let's continue reading to find out what happens. For time's sake, we're going to skip verses 19 through 15. And because I think they actually serve a different purpose in the larger story that is going on than the one that I'm trying to draw out for you tonight. Just as a quick aside, I think these verses 9 through 15 are pointing to some ambiguities in Gideon's character that make us wonder how we're supposed to understand this man. I think these verses show us that Gideon puts more stock in what a pagan Midianite says than what God says. But let's continue on in verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp and at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew their trumpets and smashed the jars, jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. 
They held it in their left hands, the torches, and in their right hands, the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and a for Gideon. Every man stood in place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth-Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. So Gideon's army surrounds the valley where the Midianites are in camp. It was probably the most pathetic scene you could possibly imagine. These 300 Israelites are approaching an army that numbers in the thousands. What happens? The 300 men blow on their horns and reveal the torches in their hands. That's it. There's nothing really that scary about what they're doing, is there? They're blowing on trumpets and waving torches in the air. But what happens? The the Midianites go nuts and start thrashing at each other. And Gideon's 300 men apparently never have to lift a finger in order to desolate this mighty army. God takes this weak, incapable man and his little 300-man army and uses them to thrash God's enemies. God is glorified in Gideon's weakness. God is glorified in the weakness of Gideon's army. As we move into a time to consider the application of this principle from God's word, I want to first address how God's glory and our weakness is related to the gospel. That might seem odd to some of you because this statement lacks almost all of the elements that we might include within a typical gospel presentation. But Fisherville, even though we might not typically think of the gospel in terms of God's glory through human weakness, I believe this idea is nonetheless fundamental to understanding the gospel. The gospel is that each and every one of us is a fallen sinner and cannot stand for even an instant before God's wrath that we deserve. I think one way you could describe what I just said is weakness. The gospel is also that Christ came to live a sinless life upon the earth, a life that we could not live, died a brutal death, and a brutal and undeserved death, a death that we deserved and raised again on the third day a hope that is now ours if we would repent of our sins and accept what Christ has done for us in faith. I think one way you could describe what I've just said there is strength, and that strength brings glory to God. The gospel is about God's glory and our weakness because he takes our weak and undesirable state and saves us for his name's sake. The phrase God's glory and our weakness might never find its way into your presentation of the gospel, but it is nevertheless there. Fisherville, in way of application, I also want to give you four statements to reflect on as we consider God's glory and our weakness. I'm going to go into some detail with the first statement, but for the rest, I'm just going to give you a statement and a scripture for you for your consideration. My goal was for you to have several different ideas of how this idea presented in Judges 6 and 7 should be applied within our lives, both within the church and within our personal lives. First, I want us to reflect on God's glory and weakness in fulfilling the Great Commission. I fully believe that if the Great Commission is going to be completed, then it is going to happen in God's strength through our weakness. I want you guys to listen to me read Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Did you catch that first part? Jesus says all authority has been given to him. The Greek word translated authority in the version that I've read to unites the word exousia, and it also contains the idea of strength or power. Do you realize the implications of this? When we do things that are focused on the Great Commission, we don't do them in our own strength, but in the power of Christ working in us. Instead of going forward in our own natural weakness, we go forward in the strength of Christ. And God is glorified through Christ's strength displayed in our weakness when we fulfill the Great Commission. I don't know how long it takes for this glorious truth to set in. I've been a Christian for about 24 years now, and it seems that every time I consider sharing the gospel with somebody, my default mode of thinking is that I'm going to do this in my own strength. And not only is that default mode of thinking so unbiblical, it leads to all sorts of other unbiblical patterns of thinking. I look at some people and think they are never going to accept Christ as their Savior. But what is that but a denial of that all authority has been given to Christ Jesus and an attempt to fulfill the Great Commission in my own strength, which ends up bringing God no glory at all. There are some days when I wake up and I feel like I don't have anything to offer anybody concerning the gospel. I have three higher-level degrees in Bible and theology, and I'm hoping to add a fourth this year, and I wake up feeling like an empty vessel. Fisherville, if I let these feelings of inadequacy keep me from God's calling to the Great Commission, what is that but a denial that all authority has been given to Jesus Christ and that he works best when he uses otherwise empty vessels with the power of the Holy Spirit to glorify his name? This point also reminds me of a conversation I had with one of my professors at Southeastern when I was a student there. His name was Heath Thomas, and he teaches at Oklahoma Baptist University now. I had gone to him for some counsel on how to pursue God's calling on my life. I don't want to go into the details, but I knew the next step that God was calling me and my family to take, but I was resistant to it because it would require me to take, do some things that I didn't want to do and to do some things that I never thought I would do. And the reason that I didn't want to do them was because they would require some risk on my part. And I remember trying to explain this to Dr. Thomas, and he finally stopped me and told me something I won't ever forget. He told me, Casey, God is never going to be able to do anything in you if you are unwilling to take risk for his sake. You see, when we are unwilling to take any risk for the sake of the gospel, it is a sure sign that we are operating in our own strength rather than relying on God's. And what Dr. Thomas essentially told me was that God was not going to glorify himself in my strength, but in my weakness. The Great Commission has never been about Jesus calling his followers to go win the lost on their own strength. God will glorify himself by fulfilling the Great Commission in our weakness through his strength. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what this looks like in your own lives. I know that right now in my own life it has led me to be a part of the prison ministry at Fisherville and also try and share, the fa- uh, share my faith with those that I work with. I know the desire to fulfill the Great Commission has led my wife to be involved in an ESL ministry on Tuesday nights. I don't know what this looks like in your own life, but I know this. God is able to glorify himself through your weakness in this area. God does not need you to be the most eloquent person ever to share your faith with a, with another, nor does he need you to have all the answers. God does not need you to wait until you've worked out every sin issue in your life to share the gospel. And God does not need you (coughs) to wait until the timing is perfect for your own life to begin following the Great Commission. All that he needs for you is a willingness to push forward in weakness. 
The second matter that I want to reflect upon in the context of God's glory and our weakness is how we serve each other in the church. Again, I'm not going to go into detail on this point, but I just want to encourage you to read a passage of scripture. It's 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, and consider how the use of spiritual gifts is an example of God glorify him, glorifying himself through our weakness. I'm sorry to give you guys homework tonight. The third matter I want to get you to reflect upon in the context of God's glory and our weakness is how we love our families. I want you to encourage I want to encourage you how Ephesians chapter 5:22 through chapter 6:4 discusses this idea. I believe that Paul calls each man, uh, member of the family to relate to one another in a position of weakness, a position that considers others more important than themselves. And I want you con- to consider how God could be glorified and the position of weakness you take in your family. One final thing, I want you to reflect upon God's glory and weakness, how that looks in the context of your work. I want you to consider how Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, discusses this idea in terms of how we may relate to others in a working environment. I think Paul is looking at ways in which workers and supervisors may be Consider, may consider expressing their strength within these working relationships and demands followers of Christ not to take part, part in these false displays of strength. I think the things Paul discusses in this text can be essentially carried straight over from their first century context and made to work in a 21st century context. And I think Paul would tell you as a follower of Christ to take a position that may be considered weak in the eyes of the peoples who do not seek to honor God but I think God would be glorified in your weakness if you would. You'll notice that these passages I'm giving you for considering how God may glorify himself through weakness in the context of your family and in your work are really just one extended block of scripture. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 9. I think it is highly relevant that we read in the verse following Paul's discussion of these relationships this, this phrase. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are not called to glorify God in our strength but in our weakness. Tonight we have studied Judges 6 through 7 and considered how God glorified himself in Gideon's weakness. It seems that the author has taken every opportunity he provided to, to him to present Gideon in a manner that would make us think that God would never be able to do anything through this man, and then shows us how God was able to fulfill his purposes and glorify himself in Gideon's weakness. We have also considered how this eye should be applied in matters that we face today. God will glorify himself in our weakness through fulfilling the Great Commission. God will glorify himself in our weakness and how we serve the body of Christ. God will glorify himself in how we love our families in weakness. God will glorify himself when we relate to those we work through with through weakness. Fisherville Baptist Church, this week, consider how God may glorify himself in weakness. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the story of Gideon, Father. What an encouragement, Father, to a weak and feeble people, Father. We must totally depend on you for every aspect of our salvation, Father.